Well, we have, over the course of the last few weeks, just been meditating on some amazing truths from Romans chapter 8. Those who trust in Jesus Christ are released from the condemnation of God's law. In Christ, we have eternal life. We have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, enabling us to deny our sinful flesh. And then, as we looked at last week, we have been adopted as beloved children of God. And so, no longer... Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, no longer are you captive to the desires of your flesh, but by the gracious work of God's Spirit, we not only are enabled to be God's children, but to actually live as God's children, to live differently. And as Pastor Stewart reminded us, the the truths in Romans 8, one of the things they speak to is motivating our pursuit of conforming to the family image of God. That is all good news. And then we come to verse 17, and a new subject is introduced. Having just described our adoption as children of God, Paul writes that if we are his children, he says in verse 17, then we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It was all going so well. The news was so good, and then Paul had to... Mention suffering. A little bit of a subject change at this point, but this, this is not some strange interjection at this point. Paul is writing to young believers in Rome who are under Emperor Nero. Nero, we, don't, we often have our image of what the emperor looked like. Nero at this point, early in his reign, is in his late teens, at best 20 years old, so he is not necessarily equipped fully to be emperor of this empire at this point. He's not a wise and gifted ruler. He had not yet begun any kind of intense persecution of Christians that would mark his reign, but that was coming in just a short time. But he's not embracing Christians either. You need to remember that in the Roman Empire at this point, life is polytheistic. There is a belief in many gods, the embrace of worship of many gods, Um, takes precedence. And in fact, the worship of the emperor is something that had long preceded Nero. For at least a century before, emperors had designated themselves as being godlike and deserving of worship. And so all of that makes Christianity really a minority group because Christianity is holding to the truth that there is but one God and he is not to be sort of co-worshipped with anyone else. He is to be worshipped alone. He alone is worthy. And so already the stage is set for what would become the brutal persecution of Christians within just about five or six years from the time that this letter was written by Paul to the church at Rome. So there is that suffering that would come, but then there's the suffering of everyday life. Just like us today, people got sick and they died. They experienced injustice and conflict. They went through the hardships of everyday life. And so suffering is not a strange concept to the believers in Rome. In fact, I think it could be argued that there's a sense in which these truths in Romans 8 that Paul is unfolding almost come as as, as something that makes the suffering, makes it harder to process these truths because they're experiencing this present reality And yet they're hearing this teaching. And so they're able to say, Paul, we hear you, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And and yes, it's incredible to think that we are in Christ 
and his spirit dwells in us. It's remarkable to know that we are empowered to obey God, and, and it is wonderful to consider that we are adopted as the very children of God, as sons and daughters, siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. But why then are we suffering so? Why this constant battle with temptation and with sin and corruption and evil and decay? Why is that all such a part of everyday life? We hear these glorious truths, and, and since they are true, how are we supposed to handle suffering? Good questions that even we ask from time to time. How is it that a child adopted by God who is in Christ and declared righteous should be inextricably joined to hardship and to suffering? I have life in Christ, I'm not condemned, and yet life can be really hard sometimes. And so this is not a, a strange interjection at this point on Paul's part, and it is for that very reason that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to have a theology of future glory, need to have a grasp on what this looks like, what is to come, for if we are to understand our existence, both this life and the life to come, we really need to see the big picture sort of split-screen view of suffering and glory. We need to see both because both are present and both are necessary and both are certainties, and that's what we're going to see this morning in Romans 8, 18 through 25, sort of this split-screen of present suffering and future glory. Both must be understood and held and appreciated by us as believers in Jesus Christ. So we start with present suffering. Let me pick up again back midway through verse 17, and then I'll read down through verse 23. We are, it says, Romans 8, 17, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Three things under the category of present suffering, and then three things under future glory. First, under present suffering, it is necessary, it is extensive, and it is groan-inducing. All right? Necessary, extensive, and groan-inducing. The necessary part goes back to verse 17, where he uses the language of provided when he says that we are heirs provided, or you could say there, if indeed we suffer with him. He actually speaks in terms of suffering as a necessity for the believer. We, we, we can't miss this because verse 17 is actually making suffering a condition of inheritance. The believer's future inheritance is necessarily preceded by suffering, and the reason for that is because of who we are co-heirs with, because we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ who suffered. And so suffering with Christ is a, is a privilege 
of our membership in the family of God. It's not always one we embrace as privilege. And yet, that's the picture that he's painting here. He's even more explicit in Philippians 1.29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you, given to you, gifted to you, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's because we're following Christ. Jesus suffered and then was glorified. If you think back to what we considered in Isaiah chapter 53, all of that is prophesied exactly in that sort of sequence. The Messiah was destined to suffer. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted uh, like a lamb who was being led to slaughter. He was cut off from the land of of the living. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But then it says in Isaiah 53, he shall see his offspring and his days shall be prolonged and many will be made righteous. The suffering, the the death on the cross, the bearing of sin was necessary as the penalty for sin, but then he was raised in glory and he has ascended to the right hand of God and he has promised that our union with him also means that we will suffer. Jesus told his followers in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Followers of Jesus Christ should expect to suffer injustice to suffer simply for naming the name of Christ a Savior. That's the reality of what Jesus taught us, and it is because Satan delights in bringing harm to God's children. Satan delights in marring the image of God and in harming all those in the image of God, but he in particular delights in bringing torment to those who are indeed co-heirs with Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's hinting at something that Paul will develop for us here in this passage. Your sufferings ultimately leading to rejoicing and being glad when his glory is revealed. Trusting in and following Jesus Christ assures us of suffering. But that is not all that Paul has in mind here. It's not just strictly talking about persecution. It includes unjust suffering by the evil of others. But the present suffering he's talking about here is more extensive than that. Look again at verse 19. He speaks of the creation. He's talking about the creation around us. This is apart from humanity now, everything else in the universe. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Present suffering is necessary for believers in Jesus Christ. It is also extensive. Uh, Certainly Romans 8 is including injustice and persecution, but it's more than that. It's really speaking more broadly of what the writer of Ecclesiastes would call life under the sun. It is life on this side of eternity. As long as we are on this earth, this is part of what we can expect for as much as suffering may shock and distress us and disappoint us, 
We must know that it is common to the Christian life because we live in a world that is broken by the effects of man's sin. Life on this side of eternity is marked by trouble. One commentator wrote it this way. He said, Paul pictures creation, and again, he's talking about all of that apart from humanity. Paul pictures creation as an innocent bystander caught up in the consequences of Adam's rebellion and eagerly awaiting release from those consequences. That's verse 20, that creation was subjected, not willingly, not on its own, but, but because of God's punishment on man's sin, because of the curse that is brought about because of man's sin. And so in Romans eight nineteen, when he speaks of the creation, it's the same word he uses back in chapter 1 at the beginning of Romans when he speaks of people worshiping the creation. And so he's talking about um, the animals and the plants and the trees and the stars and all that, that is around us when he speaks of the creation being subjected to futility. And what he's really recalling there in verse 20 that subjected by God is, is Genesis chapter 3. After Adam's sin, God declares a curse. And Genesis 3, 17 records God saying to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Sin separated man from God. Sin causes man to experience death and separation from God, but it also brings chaos and decay to creation, all of which was declared at the end of God's creative work to be very good, is now subjected to corruption. In fact, verse 20 says the creation was subjected to futility. In the years before Christ came, his first advent, when they took the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it over into Greek to try it for the, the wider audience, the, even amongst the Jews that had been brought up in Greek culture and needed it in the Greek language, when they came to the book of Ecclesiastes, and the writer in Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, or futility, futility. You see that word repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes. We talked about it a number of years ago when we went through Ecclesiastes. Hebel, the, the word that means emptiness, nothingness. That, that's the, the, that word that when they translated that over to Greek, they use the same word that he's using here for futility in Romans chapter 8. Nothingness. The creation has been subjected to emptiness, decay, and death. So there are calamities that the world would call natural disasters. There are people clashing over the, the future of the climate. The reality behind it all is that creation is and has been wearing out since Adam's sin. Decay began to set in and it continues. For all of the beauty that we see in creation, for all of the glorious pictures, wilderness pictures and mountain pictures and all the things that speak to us of God's creativity, this, is, this isn't even nearly as good as it could be. That's, that's, the point is that there is so much more that even creation longs for what is fully God's design. To, to experience the fullness of God. And so even creation has that sense that there is still more to come. And in the meantime, every human being and all of creation experience effects of God's curse on man's sin. So there are viruses and injuries and depression and anxiety and conflict and hatred. And so whether it's cancer or COVID or whether it's murder or injustice, at the root of 
all of this is the fallenness of man that started when sin entered God's very good creation. It's all consequences of that fall. And so suffering is extensive. We experience suffering, not just from evildoers or people who hate us for identifying with Christ. We experience the breakdown of the very cells in our bodies. We experience pain and suffering. We are confused. We, we don't remember things because our minds are, are frail and we have limitations. And these are all consequences. We experience with, with age, the body wearing out. Suffering is necessary. It's extensive. And then third, it's groan-inducing. So verse 22, you've got a picture of creation as sort of corporately lamenting, crying out, if you will, for liberation from its current state. Creation cannot be all that the creator made it to be right now because of the effects of man's sin in creation. And so it's groaning under the weight of the curse on man's sin. But verse 23 says it's not just creation that's experiencing this, it's we ourselves, the redeemed who belong to Christ. We groan, we sigh, we lament as a response to man's fallenness. It's that internal sense of longing, that groan really is more of an unspoken sort of thing, but it's just an expression of, of the, the longing of our soul. But, but verse 23 makes such an interesting statement when it couples this with, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. And it's tempting because we see commas in there, and, and it's, it's sort of like Paul's just interjecting something, a reminder about the Holy Spirit. But that's, what he's saying about the Spirit here is integral to, to, to his point about groaning inwardly. Paul's already said so much about the Holy Spirit in this chapter, about what the work and ministry of the Spirit is. We are to walk according to the Spirit. We are um, made new. Um, Our minds are to be set on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit is life. The Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and empowers us now to live differently. So when we come here, what's the connection of the, the Spirit of God to the groaning in verse 23? He uses a farming reference here when he says, first fruits. Some of the first part of the harvest, the first cherries that come up. The, I, that's always what excites me is those, you know, I can't wait for those spring, summer cherries. The first cherries that are, are coming up, the, the first wheat that's harvested in the field. And what that, for the farmer, what that does is that brings a sense of joy and anticipation. Because, because there's some coming, that means the, the crops made it through the summer, and, and now the harvest is coming. Now we're starting to see it. And so this is sort of the down payment, the first fruits of more that is to come. And so it's a great start, but there's anticipation. So again, how does that relate to the Holy Spirit in us and our groaning? Well, think about the work of the Holy Spirit in you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit brings you comfort, brings God's word to mind, helps you, communicates truth, convicts you of sin, um, provides just the, the presence of Christ, power to live obedient. All of that is, is true. But the Spirit's ministry is still within imperfect vessels. The, the, the Spirit is still dwelling within these frail, wearing out bodies. We are still plagued by weak flesh and sin temptations. And so the body that is a temple of God's Spirit is still battling with remaining sin, still suffering from all the consequences of the fallen world. It's wearing out. So 
my present day experience of the fullness of Christ is transforming. And it is a reminder of how I am a new creature in Christ and empowered to obedience and the spirit is doing a great work. But it is also only a foretaste of greater things to come. And that's what he means by this first fruits. I see how the spirit is already transforming me, but I know that I'm still in this frail body of flesh. And it's that divide between the two of what the spirit is accomplishing. And yet the reality of my flesh that induces this groaning, John Stott wrote it this way. He said, caught in the tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us his spirit and what he will consummate in our final adoption and redemption, we groan with discomfort and longing. In other words, it's precisely because God's spirit dwells within the believer that we know there's still something more. There's still something ahead that's so much better. There's still something greater to experience. And so in the present, that leaves me all the more grieved by my sin and frailty and foolishness and the weakness that I experience in this world because I know I know that ultimately there is a glory that is even so far greater. Present suffering is necessary, extensive, and groan-inducing. But future glory, we've already hinted at this, is incomparable, complete, and hope-inducing. Think about this word glory for a moment, because this is... Paul's got a really precise meaning when he's talking about glory here in Romans 8. Broadly speaking, when we talk about glory, we're thinking of praising God, the word doxa, the idea of opinion or giving weight to something. And so when I give glory to God, I am giving a high opinion of God. My worship is a demonstration of my attitude, my heart attitude that says who God is, who I see God as, and he is worthy of praise and is exceedingly valuable. But there's a different nuance here, and, and he starts using that word glorified in verse 17. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's talking about something future at this point, something still to come that we may be glorified. And it's a, it's a different word. It's doxa, but it's got a prefix and a suffix on it, soon doxadzo, and it's the idea that we would glory together with. There's a corporate sense to this glory of something that we're not only giving to God, but we're also experiencing with Christ. And we get this if you go down to verses 29 and 30, and this will be a future sermon in this series in more detail, but just for this morning, look at verses 29, and we get the string of things that God is doing in saving people. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn, the son might be the firstborn among many brothers, that there would be many who would come after him. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. For new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. He's given this chain of redemption. This is what God does in, in saving a sinner looking from eternity past into the future, it's sort of laid out for us in just these, these five words. But there's two things I want you to see in this that help us understand glorified. When it says God predestines someone in verse 29, he does for a specific purpose. And what is that? You see it there in verse 29. He predestines us, what? To be conformed to the image of his son. It's not merely predestined us for heaven, for salvation, 
But there's a very clear purpose in this. It is to be like Christ. It is to be changed and, and to be like him, like the resurrected son. That's the end goal. The Greek word for conform means similar in style, form, nature. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. God predestines us not merely to save us, but to make us sons and daughters who are like Jesus. We are in the process of becoming more like him. And the ultimate end of this process comes here when he speaks of glorified. 1 John 3, 2 says it there again, we will not be complete until he returns. And that's what really points us to the second thing I want you to see in 8, 29 and 30, and that's that word glorified, that last word in the chain. Glorification is the the culmination of God's work in saving you. To be glorified is, the, is sort of the climax. It is, it is something the believer in Christ experiences as the fullness of his or her salvation. Let me give you a definition, and, and it'll hopefully make sense then as we work through this passage that we're studying. Glorification is the completion of God's work of redemption in the life of the believer. It takes place when Jesus returns for his people, as John has already showed us, and the bodies of those who died in Christ are raised and made new. The redeemed body and soul are now joined and are conformed to the image and likeness of his Son. That's the key. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, speaking of the resurrection, we shall all be changed. And the perishable, the body that had an expiration date on it, will become imperishable. It will put on imperishable and the mortal body immortality. That is glorification. And that's what Paul's focusing on in Romans 8. So when he speaks of the future glory, it's not simply the return of Jesus Christ, although that's wonderful and that's a promise we cling to. It's not simply being in heaven and being in the presence of our Savior, though that's remarkable and it's something that we look forward to joyously. When he talks about being glorified, he's talking about the transformation of our bodies of flesh into glorified resurrection bodies. It is the completion of the redemption of the whole person. And this future glory, he says, is first and foremost incomparable. He says that in verse eight, verse 18, I should say. When he reminds us there that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's saying if you could set your, your present sufferings, you could take all of your sufferings from all of your life and, and you could put them all here and you had future glory over here. They, they don't even, they're not even in the same league. The one so outweighs the other. The one is so far greater than the other. When Paul says, I consider, he, he's saying, I reckoned, I, I, I thought about this, I pondered this. And, and, and he's saying, let me tell you, the, the one is not even remotely like the other. The one... As, as consuming as it can feel, is fleeting. The suffering is fleeting and the glory is forever. The one is for a season, albeit a terrible season, but the other brings endless joy and peace and fellowship with the Creator. The one is terrible in this moment, but when you are glorified, what he's saying is that suffering will remarkably almost seem like nothing. 
that suffering that for now, it's hard to, hard to even see it that way. And it's very real and it hurts. But that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 can call it light and momentary affliction because he's weighing it on this sort of split screen view that sees present suffering and then sees future glory and says, you can't compare these two. The, the, the one is so far greater than the other. When we receive resurrection bodies, when, when, when Christ returns and we are made new with these resurrection bodies, there will never be a moment when you or I will say, man, I miss that old body. I miss that, that ability to gain weight and pack on some pounds. I miss those achy knees or back or, or my eyesight. Or... There will never be a moment like that because he's saying this future glory is incomparable. Some of you, some of you live with chronic pain. Some of you have experienced illness and chronic pain. And by the grace of God, some medical procedure, some therapy, some surgery, some medicine has, has given you relief. Have you ever thought, man, I miss that pain? I, I just, remember the last time you were flat on your back with some virus and you just couldn't move. And do you ever look back and go, boy, just a little taste of that again would just be so good right now. No, because the, the, the two are incomparable. And friends, I, I know we often, as we're going through these passages, we say, Paul said this, Paul wrote this. Can, can I just remind you, Romans 8.18 is the very word of God. This is our God assuring us that present suffering is not worth being compared to future glory. This is God's word promising us that when your body and soul are transformed into the likeness of Christ, the experience will be unsurpassed. Nothing on this side of eternity will compare. That's the future glory. And so the indwelling of the Spirit is just a foretaste. It's a first fruits promise of what that is. Future glory is incomparable. Secondly, it's complete. And this is, again, where the creation comes into play. We know creation was subjected to futility and, and to decay. And we've already seen it groans with this longing for the day when believers are glorified and we groan inwardly longing for that day to come. When that day comes, it will be complete. Verse 21 says, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The, the language of setting free from bondage to decay makes it very clear that it is not God's design to simply, um, when, when Christ returns, just annihilate the universe and just, start a brand new one, it is, it is his work to transform it, to set it free. So he will take this universe and he will make it new. He will make this creation new and it will be transformed to be all that the creator intended it to be. And a key mark of that transformed universe will be a creation that no longer wears out, that no longer decays. The consequence of the fall that brings Decay and decline into humanity and creation will be no more. And this will happen at the glorification of God's children. That's why he says, creation waits for us to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's when God will rescue even all of creation. Notice verse 23 says, we as believers wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That at first should sound a little perplexing because we've already read Back in verses 14 and 16, that, that adoption already sounds like a, 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 an established fact. If you look back at 14, 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, and we are children of God. So what does he mean that we eagerly await for the adoption? Being adopted by God is one of the truths that we, we celebrate, right? That we are thankful for, that, that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you have been made a son or daughter of the living God, and these verses speak with certainty. So what's verse 23 describing? Well, it's, it's much the same as what we saw when he talks about the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. There is a, there is a clear declaration. This is an established fact, and it is true, but the experience of it has really only just begun. There is so much more to this adoption that we still, we, we long as we do with the first fruit of the Spirit, we also long for the experience of the fullness of adoption. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, your adoption is sure, but we are awaiting the final and fullest experience of that. Somebody mentioned to me um, during the break between the services, one way to think about this is if you do a foreign adoption, there may be a point at which you have gone through the legal process and you have legally adopted the child, but there may still be a process in terms of visas or whatever is involved in the immigration process that may mean that you still got months before you're actually able to go and, and to take those children. So it's legal, they are adopted, but the experience is still yet to come of, of actually taking those children to oneself. I, I think the way we can think about this as believers is think in terms of your, your fellowship, your intimacy with God. And for most of us, whether we like it or not, there's a little bit of a roller coaster to our daily fellowship and intimacy with God. There are days when we are feeling like we are plugged into God's word and he's speaking through his word and we are engaging with him in prayer and, and we feel the Lord's nearness, whether it's conviction of sin or comfort, but, but there's just a, that experience. And then there are those days when we think, how in the world does God love me? I, I just feel so far from him. I've, I've put away his word. I've not been praying or my sin or whatever it is. That fellowship is still experienced through bodies that are frail and wearing out and susceptible to temptation. And so my sin still diminishes that sense of intimacy, just like conflict in a marriage can, can, can take what seems like a wonderful intimate moment and, and put separation in it in the same way we, on our part, because of our sin, feel like we are far away from God, even though God has never moved and God is still near. We, by our own frailties, and not being fully transformed into the image of Christ, still don't have the experience of the fullness of our adoption. Praise God, there is coming a day when my new heart will be joined to a body that is made new, and that no longer carries around remaining sin. And I will be able to have intimacy with God without sin, without temptation, without distraction. I will no longer be susceptible to all of the world stuff. In fact, when that day comes, God not only in transforming me and his creation will also vanquish sin and temptation. It will all be gone. We will experience the intimacy that we were made for. And that is hope-inducing. And that's the last point, Romans 8, 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
We've talked about groaning, yearning, longing. Here's the thing. We've all been in situations where we have yearned or groaned or longed for something. We've, we've all had experiences when we have said, God, please um, take this away. We've longed for the pain to end. We've longed for the conflict to be resolved. There's um, perhaps some thorn in the flesh that we've asked God to remove in some way. And you, you may be this morning eagerly pleading for God to remove something. You're yearning for God to give you relief from some present suffering. And that may or may not come, or it may come in some small sense and morph into something else and, and still not feel like complete relief. But this yearning for future glory, this is certainty. This is based on Christ's assurance to us. We have the Lord's word that when Jesus comes, we will be changed. Glorification is a promise. And so when verse 24, it describes the world's kind of hope. It, it's the hope that says, I see it, I want it, so I put it in my cart and I buy it, right? Uh, I, I hope for that. Well, it, it's right there and I just, maybe I'll have to work a little bit harder and a little bit of money, but eventually I'm going to make it mine. So that's, that's not the kind of hope he's talking about. He's describing God as setting in your heart and mind a hope for something we cannot see. A hope that transcends all of the suffering of today in the most unrivaled of ways. That pain that you're feeling about your, your marriage, your kids, your job, your health, your lack of any of the above. That suffering must be seen as believers on that split-screen vision of this life and the one to come. That yes, it's real, and that's why the Holy Spirit is ministering comfort and strength to us and convicting us when we're responding poorly to suffering and to circumstances in this life. But the Spirit is also putting in our being a groaning, a yearning for, for that which is to come, a kind of inward groaning that longs for the day when your King comes, and destroys the final enemies of sin and death, and you and I have a kind of existence like we have never known before. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 says, So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. I've read those verses often at gravesides. And they don't, they don't vanquish all the tears. They don't overcome all the grief. Pain is real. The loss is real. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, those verses do give an all-surpassing, soul-satisfying, outlook-changing vision of the incomparable glory that awaits every soul that is trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Amen? Amen? That is our hope. That's what we look forward to, even in our deepest and darkest suffering, when the pain is unquestionably real, we still have hope in Christ because Scripture says we will be raised and we will be changed and the creation around us will be transformed and we will experience a kind of fellowship with our King and with our fellow believers, the likes of which now we can scarcely even imagine. That is the hope 
for things that we cannot yet see. Let's pray. Father, your word speaks to us, not just calling us to, to trust in Christ and to be empowered to live differently, but, but regularly sets in front of us what the Apostle Paul set in front of those Roman believers, some of whom were, were just a very short time away from the kind of pain and suffering that seemed almost unimaginable. The loss of loved ones, if not their own lives, under terrible circumstances. But your word, your word is given to us to, to plant deeply in our hearts so that in present suffering we would not lose sight of this glory. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially for those for whom suffering feels so persistent, seems to dog them, whether it's anxiety or pain or just relational issues whether it's past experiences, Lord, things that are real and painful. Your word eagerly speaks to us and acknowledges without a doubt our groaning, our awareness that this is not as it should ultimately be. There's still so much more. And thank you for setting that in front of us. Thank you for promising hope Thank you that there is coming a day when, when these tired bodies will be made new and this creation will be more majestic, more marvelous than our wildest imagination. Thank you for the hope of future glory. Lord, I pray for anyone listening here, maybe here with us this morning or watching online and feels like they do not have that hope. They don't understand the basis for that hope. I pray that today would be the day when your spirit would open their eyes to see that this suffering of Jesus Christ is not just a, an activity done that we sort of go through some level of suffering and that earns us something, but rather the suffering of Christ was the perfect, glorious, sinless Son of God taking upon himself our sin, and then bearing in his body the judgment for that sin, your holy wrath against that sin, so that his suffering on the cross was not meaningless, but was in fact the greatest suffering ever. It was to take away the penalty for sinners who would then turn and trust in Christ. And so I pray that today would be the day that some who are listening would would say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died in my place. I believe you rose again. And I ask you to forgive my sins. Cause me to be a new creature. Lord, give me the, this promise of future glory. Lord, may we as your church, as Grace Bible Church, may we be an outpost of hope in a weary world. May we be a place where when people come or when we are stepping out into our own neighborhoods and communities and workplaces that people see the clear evidence of those who don't trivialize suffering, those who act like it's not there, but who in their suffering see a glorious Savior and an incomparable glory that awaits. That is our hope. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.